continuing with this uh, section of the book, uh, Being Dharma. This is a um, section is called Practicing Dharma, and this is a lengthy talk that Lumpo Cha gave on the occasion of the uh, Asian New Year, Songkran, in um, uh, the middle of April, which is a, a, wa- a water festival. That's the, the hot season, dry season in Thailand, Southeast Asia. So it's a, a kind of a, it's the one uh, festival day in the year that's marked by the sun rather than uh, the moon days. And so anyway, it was a, a lengthy talk, and uh, we'll continue with this. This is the last part of the talk today. These days, I've been considering things. I go to various places to give lectures. Groups of people come here as well. Yet, in a gathering of a hundred or a thousand people, there might be four or five who really make an effort to practice the Dharma. So I prefer speaking to small groups. It's easier to instruct and admonish those people who really have faith and devotion. If there are a thousand people and only fifty or so are really being mindful of themselves and making some sincere effort, there's no way to accomplish anything. It's the same thing when you do your work. When you're off working in the rice fields, you might go out and work really hard for a few days, transplanting the seedlings for the next rice crop. But someone follows after you, pulling them up after you put them in the ground. No matter how long you keep at it, she she just keeps following behind, pulling up all the seedlings. Who could manage like this? Tomorrow you plant again, and she's walking after you to undo what you've done. Can you succeed in your work? Does it create any benefit? When you look back, you see the other person destroying your work, pulling up the seedlings and throwing them into the paddy. What should you do? What are you labouring for? Before too many more days pass, we're going to die. So why should we bother with ignorant people like that? So uh, this is fairly blunt feedback, <laughs> but uh, pointing to uh, the the way that um, the uh, rice... Uh, crops are sort of taken care of in the village. Um, a northeast village life is a very uh, communal process. So when they are planting rice, what their people do is they create a little seed bed. So they have a, a small paddy, a small paddy field, and they plant uh, lots and lots of rice plants close together. So that's the seed bed. So they grow up there, and when the seedlings have reached a certain size, then they pick them out of that seed bed and they plant them at more widely spread intervals in the main paddy fields. So there's a whole, and then everyone helps everybody else in the planting process. So that um, that they, all the villagers sort of put this all together uh, as a group uh, during the the planting season. So it's generally a lot of people out in the in the fields together. So this what he's describing here is where you take the seedlings and you're putting them in, usually at about. Um, say a, a foot between the plants or that kind of nine inches or a foot between plants 30 or 40 centimeters between plants and then saying you know it's just like if you're putting your seedlings in and someone's walking along behind you and pulling, pulling them up again so this is he's comparing it to uh, giving uh, giving Dhamma teachings but then um, people sort of uh, actively going against or influencing others to uh, to not function or not to, to act in accordance with, with those teachings or to say um, uh, criticize them or to encourage people to go in the opposite direction to be living in more you know, unskillful or, or, or wasteful ways and so that uh, as he says you know why should we bother with ignorant people like that 
So again, it can seem a bit a bit blunt, but uh, one of the, um, the 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 aspects of the Buddha is that he was a very pragmatic teacher, and um, uh, and so that there are occasions where he um, he, he points out you know, if, if somebody's not really interested, or they don't really have any. Uh, uh, any any faith, they're not really listening, they're not paying uh, attention to what you're offering, then there's really not much point talking to them. There's no point trying to, to, to do anything. And it's not because you don't care, but it's because the, it, it's, uh, the, nothing is going in, nothing is really being received. And um, again, I forget if I brought this example up or quoted this um, passage previously, but I know there's a few more new people. But there's a particular dialogue that the Buddha had with a, a horse trainer uh, called Casey, and um, the uh, uh, and Casey, the horse trainer, is asking the Buddha, "How does the Buddha train?" Hmm? I, I'm just I'm seeing C A S E Y, Casey, the horse. K E S I. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not Casey as in a cowboy movie. No. K E S I, Casey. Not Casey Jones on the on the uh, on the on the uh, the engine driver. Um, so Casey, the horse trainer, and uh, the Buddha said, uh, and Casey said, "How do you train your disciples?" Uh, and uh, the uh, the Buddha says, "Well, how do you how do you train your horses?" Uh, and uh, Casey said, "Well, there's, there's essentially you got four different kinds of horses. Uh, you have the the best kind of horse. It moves at the shadow of the whip. So if you, if the rider just lifts the whip up, as soon as the horse sees the whip sort of moving, the shadow of the whip moving past their eye, then they're they're ready to." To go like a rocket, <laughs> like Casey Jones, um, and then the second kind is that uh, you just touch the horse once with the whip, and then they, it's ready to go. The third kind is you have to whack them a few times, and then they'll they'll really go. And the fourth kind is no matter how much you you whack them, then they, they don't respond. They don't uh, they don't pay attention to the wishes of the of the guidance of the rider. And then the Buddha said, "Well, I teach my disciples in exactly the same way. You have the four different kinds of disciples." Uh, there are those that that move with the shadow of the whip. As soon as they hear the teaching, they understand it and they act upon it. Um, the second type, uh, they have to hear it a few times and then they're ready to act upon it. Uh, the third type, you have to teach them over and over and over again. And eventually, finally, they, they uh, start to act upon it and they get the point. And the fourth type, uh, no matter what you say, no matter, no matter how hard you try, they, they, don't, uh, they don't pay attention, they don't really understand the teaching and they don't act upon it. And so then uh, the the Buddha said to to Casey, so uh, the, those fourth kind of horses, uh, what do you do with them? And he said, well, we we kill them and feed them to the dogs, because uh, uh, there's no point you know spending uh, wasting time on uh, on horses of that nature. And he said, what do you do with your fourth kind of disciples? Oh, I kill them too. And, and Casey says. Venerable sir, surely this can't be the case. You know, you are. A, uh, isn't this against the precepts of a, a, of a of a monk? You know, you're a fully enlightened Buddha. How can you kill your disciples? And he says, I kill them in the training. Um, and he said, Well, how do you do that? And he said, uh, Such uh, such people, I no longer offer them admonishment or guidance. So it's like in a similar way, not uh, in not because you don't care, but because this is you know putting seeds into rock. It's not. <laughs> Dropping seeds on the rock, they're not going to, they're not going to uh, grow, and so that uh, that um, declining to give uh, guidance or feedback uh, uh, is uh, the way the Buddha, quote unquote, kills uh, 
those disciples who are, are un, untrainable. So again, that might come across as a bit uh, blunt or, or brutal, but also the Buddha was very, very pragmatic. <laughs> and um, also, it's kind of interesting that um, the right at the very end uh, of the, the Buddha's teaching career, the Parinibbana, just before his final passing away, um, he instructed the um, the Sangha to to uh, give a, a special kind of punishment to Chana, the Venerable Chana, who'd been his charioteer. And uh, they, he, he sort of, as a, almost as a kind of final thought, oh, by the way, uh, you should issue the Brahmadanda, the supreme punishment on, on Chana. Because Chana was apparently very proud of the fact that he used to be the, the, the Buddha's charioteer, his kind of driver, and took on a sort of special status. You know, I used to be his driver. And, and it was kind of arrogant and um, thought of himself as a special person and uh, was a bit inflated. And this is uh, all the way through the Buddha's life. So 45 years of the, of the Buddha being a fully enlightened teacher after Chana had um, been his driver and Chana was still puffed up and inflated after all these years of being close to the Buddha. So the Buddha, it seems like he felt all these years and he's still, he's still so thick, you know, you can't get through to him. Okay, well, <laughs> one last treatment, I'll see if we can get through with, a, with this. And so he, uh, he asked the Sangha to ostracize him. Say, okay, so even even someone as thick-skinned as Chana, right? If he gets if he doesn't get this, then he really is hopeless. So then, finally, the message got through to Chana. Like, oh my goodness! You know, almost at the last breath, the master is ready to punish me for being an arrogant idiot. Okay, <laughs> okay, I really do need to change my ways. And so it was part of the great skill of the Buddha that even though it was like, don't talk to Chana, ostracize him, sort of push him out. Maybe that'll get the point across, and it and it did. So it was a, the one of the Buddha's final teachings was to to give uh, Chana a kind of a, a firm shove, and uh, it worked uh, right at the at the last minute. So sometimes pushing people away or or making that kind of a gesture, it can still be the thing that that gets the message uh, across. Maybe another point to make, even though Longpur says this thing about, you know, if there's a thousand people and only 50 can understand, then what's, you know, what's the point? Um, certainly, uh, he, he is speaking in that manner in this, his Dhamma talk, but also, <laughs> along the way, uh, one of his, um, um, say, uh, one of his principles was that he would accept quite a lot of invitations, and so sometimes... Um, he was criticized for say the uh, agreeing for the Sangha to go and do wedding blessings and such like or house blessings and many of the forest ajans that the the Sangha in the forest monasteries they they might do funerals occasionally but generally they would avoid doing any kind of of these sort of uh, blessing ceremonies and it would be seen now that's just for the the village monks or the town monks can do that and uh, um, you know, serious practicing Sangha members, you know, don't involve themselves in those kind of um, secular events or the, those kind of ceremonies. And then uh, he, sometimes um, Lumpur Chah was criticised for that and saying, "Well, why do you go along? Because you know, as soon as as soon as you finish the blessing ceremony and you you've left the 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 wedding, then you know, out comes the whiskey, and the, <laughs> the party continues. And sometimes I have actually seen that where you 
you're you're leaving by the front door, and the people are carrying the crates of booze in by the back door. You know, you can hear the bottles chinking as you as you're leaving the building, sort of getting into the the van. But and so anyway, Lumpur was sometimes criticised for for being involved in that, but he. It's one of the reasons why we, we learned the Purita chanting and we learned to perform these ceremonies because uh, Lumpur Chao was uh, sometimes, uh, when he was challenged by that, he's saying, well, you know, sometimes this is the only chance that some of these these people are ever going to get to hear a Dhamma talk because they're, they're never going to go to the monastery and you're invited into their home. So it's an opportunity for them to actually you know, hear some teachings and maybe have a cause to, to reflect when they, they don't have any kind of hope in, in a different circumstance. And so that um, even though he did say, you know, what's the point? If there's only a handful of people in a large number. Um, at the other end of the scale, he would say, yeah, there is a point. <laughs> so there might be one or two people there that can hear, can, can understand, and they might not go to the monastery, but because uh, they, they're there, um, and sitting and, and listening, then it, something might might sink in. It might have a uh, a useful effect. So it's not just like a blanket policy that, that he had or a fixed opinion, but he also took steps, took an initiative to accept invitations like that and to to give talks just on the basis that um, there might be uh, uh, one or two people that, that benefit. And similarly, in the Buddha's own time. Um, there was you know, situations where one one well-known incident was where there was a, a um, he'd arrived in a in a local market town and the the um, the leaders of the community had asked him to give a dhamma talk and so there was a lot of people gathered together in the in the sort of the market uh, the marketplace and there was a seat set up for the Buddha to give a talk and then he just sat there without speaking and um, people said. Uh, well, you know, venerable sir, you know the, and the uh, everybody's ready, and it's it's time to give a dhamma talk, and and the Buddha said, you know, not yet. And uh, when uh, venerable Ananda, you know, asked him then why why you know, why are we waiting for you to give the talk? He said, oh, there's there's someone who's on who's on their way. They haven't arrived yet, and so uh, I, I won't start speaking until they they got here. And it was a poor farmer um, who had lost his cow. And his cow had run away, and so he wanted to come and hear the, the the Dhamma talk, but his cow had run away, so he had to go out and find his where his cow had wandered into the fields, get his cow back, um, and then uh, get that sort of securely in the in the paddock, and then he came to the to the talk. So this poor farmer showed up, and then the Buddha said, "This man is is exhausted. He's uh, uh, he's uh, he's hungry. Give him some food." And then when they given him some food, he had something to eat. He was a bit refreshed. Then the Buddha gave the Dhamma talk, and it was because he knew that this was a person who was going to be able to understand the teaching, and that was kind of mainly, quote-unquote, mainly for him, because he thought this one's going to understand the teaching and, and realize stream entry while I'm speaking. So the, all the rest of the town kind of didn't mention what, what their potential might be, but he wanted to wait, because he knew there's this one, it was worth waiting and, and worth um, going to all that uh, bother, for the purpose, for the benefit of, of one particular individual, so that that sense of doing it, even if there's only uh, a small proportion of the folks gathered that might really benefit, then still catering and, and uh, adapting things for just that one person, like that small number is there's a precedent for that. So, any thoughts, questions? Well, it, it echoes um, the Buddha's 
being requested by Brahma Sampati as well. There may be a few. But what I thought was interesting about Lumpur's uh, Cha's talk there is it in your in my mind anyway, it's like, hmm, okay, which one am I? Am I the one who actually would really open my mind and listen, or am I the one who's not so you know interested? Who would I be? And that, that kind of sharpens my my uh, receptivity. So maybe he was clever in that way as well. Hmm. Indeed, yeah, the people listening to him saying this, oh, am I one of the five percent, one percent? Brighten up. So to continue. The Buddha said that whatever actions bring no benefit, we need not do. Morality leads to happiness. That's Silena Sukatinyanti. It's after the, we, the ceremony of determining the five precepts, then there's this, this little verse that is recited Imani Panchasi Karpadani, Silena Sukatinyanti, Silena Boga Sampada, Silena Niputinyanti, Tasama Silangviso Daye. So sugati is, is happiness. So morality leads to happiness, is the truth. But people don't have happiness. If we try to talk about morality and virtue, people become afraid. It seems it has become very difficult to be a moral and spiritual person in society these days. But if people really have an accumulation of merit, if they have faith and mature minds, they will think about things deeply and have the wisdom to disengage themselves and find time to practice dharma to the best of their ability. Morality is a treasure, silena bhoga sampada. Bhoga is treasure or wealth. Um, uh, sampada means abundance or, or fullness. Uh, 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 so silena sukatinyanti, silena bhoga sampada. So morality uh, leads to abundant wealth or is a, is a treasure, is something supremely valuable. Morality is a treasure. All wealth and enjoyment is born of morality. There is the treasure of wealth, the treasure of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. All these things that we possess as we sit here are treasures and accomplishments. And they are born of past moral conduct, the treasure of morality. When we think of treasure, we think only about kinds of wealth that can be seen by the eyes, such as money, possessions, jewels and gold. We don't consider our own eyes and ears themselves, our nose or our body. Think about it. If these limbs and sense organs are not whole, how will we enjoy material riches? We should be taking care of ourselves. Our eyes, our ears and limbs are things that we should take care of. If someone were to try to buy an arm from you, offering many thousands of dollars, would you want to cut it off and sell it to them? Would tens of thousands of dollars to pluck out one of your eyes interest you? What is their value to you? That you are whole and enjoy these kinds of wealth because of morality is something you don't think about. The inner wealth that is born of morality is like this, but we don't see it as wealth. So there's a couple of things here. So that um, uh, part of this, uh, what Lumpur is saying here, is that the uh, uh, say the, the benefit of having a body with functioning limbs and organs and uh, sense, uh, senses uh, will be seen as the, the uh, beneficial results of past skillful action and skillful attitudes. So that, that's part of it. But also that um, recognizing that having a, a, an appreciative mind and having uh, senses that function, like even if you've got 
piles and piles of money <laughs> if you haven't got uh, if you can't see you can't hear or your thinking faculties are uh, are, are compromised then what's that uh, what's that all that wealth um, worth to you uh, that you know you, you need to have uh, a healthy mind and and uh, some healthy senses at least in order to really benefit from any kind of material wealth that you have yeah if I'll, if these limbs and sense organs are not whole how will we enjoy material riches so everything depends on 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 mind in that respect but also i would say a third thing is that in terms of uh, of the ability to practice having a a, a a functioning mind that can discern and reflect and uh, the ears and eyes and uh, and limbs that that function well is a great benefit and so that this the potential that this life has for spiritual uh, development and genuinely being a source for for happiness and liberation that those uh, healthy physical fac uh, faculties are are a major uh, support they're very beneficial for that obviously you can be blind or deaf and still practice dumb and you can still you can be stuck in a wheelchair or, or such like that um, it's not absolutely essential but having those uh, those faculties available uh, something that is very very helpful and then uh, as a, a theme that he develops the um, uh, the the and in the first part of this he says um, uh, it seems very difficult to be moral and a spiritual person in society these days um, if we talk about morality and virtue people become afraid one of the, the uh, the, the principles that Lumpur often mentioned was that everyone wants happiness, but people generally don't like to create the causes of happiness. And nobody wants suffering, but people generally like to create the causes of suffering. And those kind of little nuggets <laughs> put, on a, put on a teacup or a T-shirt. Huh? That, uh, and that the, in, the inclination of our, our instincts and our, our habits, our conditioning is... Uh, finding ways of, for comfort and convenience and and, and sense pleasure, and which then uh, tends to be a cause for for unhappiness, and morality, kind of restraint or kindness, unselfishness, um, and so forth, which is hard to do. Uh, that, then that is what actually causes happiness, but it goes against our that uh, uh, habits of self-centered thinking and um, kind of a, uh, reactive impulses that so easily dominate the mind the um uh, again it's not uh, obviously the the case for everybody in all situations but i think that that way of phrasing things it's a helpful snapshot that yes we <laughs> we want happiness but you don't uh, happiness uh, has uh, causes it's an effect that arises from causes and that um uh, in many of the buddha's teachings then that you know sila <coughs> Being the the kind of foundation of the path and the the foundation of, of happiness and freedom is something that's that's very much highlighted. And I think a few weeks ago, before the, my solo time, I was quoting that uh, teaching that's known as liberation is a natural process, and it uh, it starts off by the Buddha saying, "Yeah, for one who who lives according to to the sila, who lives virtuously, there's no need for them to think." May my heart be free from remorse, because it's natural. It's completely in accordance with nature. If if you are living in a moral way, that you're you're not creating the causes for remorse to uh, arise. And then one who is free from remorse, then it's natural for the the body and the mind 
to be at ease for a sense of self-respect to uh, and uh, ease of being to arise someone who has that sense of, of physical ease and mental ease then contentment naturally arises from that one who is content there's no need for them to think make the mind be concentrated because one whose mind uh, is content then it's it's natural for that mind to easily be concentrated and then one whose mind is concentrated there's no need for them to think may knowledge knowledge and vision of the way things are may insight arise because if the mind is concentrated it's natural for uh, wisdom and insight to arise and then one in whom insight has arisen there's no need to think may the mind let go and be dispassionate and, and unentangled because that's the natural result of it so as a whole uh, sequence of uh, processes that will follow naturally on one from the other, like uh, rain falling onto the onto a hilltop and then forming into little uh, street, uh, small streams and then uh, bigger streams and rivers and flowing to the sea. It's like one thing follows naturally along from the other, and at the very root of it is uh, is sila. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Just thinking about yeah. how um, Harhand can uh, relate with uh, how and Harhand can relate with sexuality. He become naturally celibate or he can uh, approach other you know, refined ways or to relate with it. Uh, and Harhand... Yeah, an arahant has no interest whatsoever in sexual activity. There's um, a couple of uh, of, of suttas side by side in the the book of the nines, I think it is suttas number seven and number eight, where the Buddha is talking to to two uh, wanderers of a different sect, uh, Suttava and Sajja, and uh, he says for when a, the, when considering the nature of an arahant. Um, they are uh, incapable of violence. They can't deliberately take the life of another living being. They they are incapable of stealing. They can't take what is not given. They uh, they they can't engage in sexual activity. And it's not like there's a precept that they're following. It's just like offering a hamburger to a horse. It's like you know, uh, if, you, <laughs> if you a horse will sniff a hamburger and go, no, that's just that's not something that I'm going to eat. It's just there's no no interest, no connection there. So that uh, for an arahant, they, they, uh, the relationship to other living beings is based on, on love and kindness and compassion, but there's no uh, no sexual element whatsoever arising there. It's just like that, that's not part of the chemistry. So, uh, and so that's very clear. So in other Buddhist traditions, in the northern Buddhist world, you get sometimes uh, stories or accounts of uh, people who are in, uh, enlightened beings who are living a family life or uh, and so on and so forth or people who are so well known as Buddhist teachers who have families and, and children and uh, they're regarded as fully enlightened but that doesn't fit in with the, the southern Buddhist model of things I wouldn't judge whether that's they are actually enlightened or not enlightened those, those particular people but in terms of and it makes perfect sense to me I mean that's just uh, if you consider like a, the, your most sort of clear and peaceful moments, say sitting in the temple, your mind is totally uh, sort of awake and alert and, and peaceful, and then the, just the, any kind of, um, say, 
interest in any sort of sexual activity is it is not there. It's just a, and it's it's not so that anything is being restrained. It's just that there's there, there's nothing for that. There's no cause for that. Those kind of feelings to arise. I would suggest. So that uh, uh, that we can it's something that we can we can look at from our own uh, our own perspective, our own experience, and just look at the the mind in a state of meditation, and just to notice that. Oh, look at that. That's or like or in relationship to things like food or travel. It's like you can be you know uh, f- again sitting in meditation or in walking meditation, and that the you're you're totally content not having a any anything to eat. Uh, you might the body might be saying you know I'm hungry, but it's like okay, well it's a feeling of hunger, but there isn't any food around, so fine, nothing is missing. There's a the 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 mind is not dwelling upon or f- or say giving any kind of s- validity or strength to those um, those kind of sense impressions. So it's good to explore for oneself. That's how I understand things. So yeah, an arahant also is interestingly in those in those teachings. Yeah, an arahant can't tell a lie either. They're incapable of of lying. Again, it's not like a precept that they're following, but it's just their tongue cannot form an untruth. It's like they they just it, the words won't won't take shape. Not because oh that's not quite true. That, yeah, that's not true. I shouldn't say that. It's just it just won't go there. <laughs> Like uh, Lumpur Shah said uh, one time, you know that you could offer him. Uh, he said, "If you offered me a million baht to kill an ant, I couldn't do it." So that, uh, that which were, in that in those days that would be like a gigantic amount of money to support the monastery. He said, "No, it's, couldn't possibly do it. Unthinkable. Like, no, 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 uh, no fuel for that." No basis for that. Okay, so to continue. Please make some effort to consider this. Sitting in this gathering, there might be some half people and quarter people as well. Days and nights keep passing. They don't stop, but keep passing by. Ask yourselves, today, what have I done? Have I been living mindfully or heedlessly? Just how have I been doing things? What's the story here? All of us need to look at ourselves in this way. Doing this, we'll be able to solve our problems. Don't be too keen on solving others' problems. Work out your own issues first. If you can't fix yourself, you won't be able to do do anything for others. If you can solve your own problems, then you can do your best to help others. But they aren't able... But... If you can solve your own problems, and then you do your best to help others, but they aren't able to make use of your help, you needn't get upset over that. You remain in a state of normalcy, not feeling that you've lost anything. There's no harm done to you. So just to pick up a, a few things there. So um, uh, sitting in this gathering, there might be some half people or quarter people. That might be a strange concept. <laughs> in In Buddhist psychology, there are... Two two different words are used for a human being. One is pugala, which literally means a, a person, 
and manusa, which means uh, a human, uh, a, a true human being. So the, the human realm in the six realms is called the manusa loka. And the characteristic of a manusa is one who lives at least by the five precepts. So to be a pugala, you can be a pugala, you can have a human body, but not actually be living in the, in the manusa loka. So, uh, and again, some people, you know, that same thought, like, oh, which one am I? <laughs> which category do I, fall, do I fall into? So you can have a human body, but, but if your mind, it does, if, you, if the precepts are not uh, respected, then your mind is dwelling on uh, you know, animal instincts or, or the dwelling in the realms of addiction and the hungry ghosts. Then there's a human body, but you're not really living in the human realm. And so that, that uh, when he says they're half people or quarter people, that he, uh, that's how I understand it. He's referring to that if you're not living according to the precepts, then yeah, there's a human body, but you're not really in the in the human realm. And that's in the in the, the six realms. That's the the characteristic of the of the manusaloka is the the quality of uh, of virtue. Then uh, this the statement: the days and nights keep passing. So in the uh, the ten subjects for frequent recollection. Uh, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Is one of the um, the reflections that the Buddha encourages us to to consider, particularly those who have gone forth, but uh, those who have not gone forth as well. It still applies. You know, the days and nights are passing. Uh, how uh, what have I done today? Have I have I been living mindfully or, or heedlessly? Just how have I been doing things? So to be considering again, not. Uh, creating anxiety or self-hatred or criticism or inflation like i've been really mindful i'm so good i'm a real spiritual person yeah i'm, I'm much better than him or her yeah. so that the, that kind of assessing is encouraged is useful but uh, not to be building up self-view and judgment about uh, inflated or or critical judgments about yourself or others uh, as part of it then um uh, all of us need to look at our, our, ourselves in this way. Doing this will be able to solve our problems. Don't be too keen on solving others' problems. Work out your own issues first. So that's a standard piece of advice. It's difficult to teach others to swim if you can't swim yourself. Or if you can't teach others to play the violin or, uh, or meditate if you, if you don't know how to meditate yourself or play the violin yourself. So then there's, and then the last thing he says here, I, I feel, is also very significant. Um, if you can't fix yourself, you won't be able to do anything for others. That doesn't mean to say you, if you're a doctor, you, you, know, you can help other people in various ways. Like if you're an architect, you can help build buildings. Or you can, if you're an, an engineer, you can, uh, you can help to construct things. Yeah, we can help in those ordinary practical um, uh, say ways in society. But he's, when he's saying you can't do anything spiritually for others is really what is meant there that um, uh, that's the particular skill he's referring to and then uh, I think very interestingly he says if you can solve your own problems then you can do your best to help others but if they aren't able to make use of your help you needn't get upset over that so that's quite a different take on compassion and helping others that we have in the Buddhist tradition than uh, in the in the Western world um, and so that in uh, Buddhist psychology, karuna is not a state of suffering. And so the English word compassion literally means to suffer with, compassio from the Latin. So uh, in, in Buddhist psychology, compassion is not a state of suffering. So it's an appreciation or an empathy with the suffering of others, 
but you are not suffering on account of the suffering of others. You appreciate that, you care about that, but uh, being open to the suffering of others is not generating suffering in yourself. So it's a very, very different take on the whole domain of helping others and and appreciating the, the suffering that, that other beings experience. And so that's a, a, may, a kind of a categorical difference, I would say, that you find in, and what I feel one of the great blessings of uh, of Buddha Dhamma, and that uh, you know, you the, again, the, the Buddha was motivated by compassion. The, the Brahma Sahampati invited him to teach, and he spent forty-five years traveling barefoot around the uh, the uh, the highways and byways of of northeast India, the Himalayas, and the Ganges Valley. And he did what he could, but uh, there was again when there, he came across people who couldn't be helped or wouldn't be helped, then it didn't create suffering in in himself. Um, so he did what he could, and if other, if other people didn't want to listen or they were uh, determined to go their own way, then okay, <laughs> not glad that they are not uh, uh, not not glad that they are um, not listening or not being able to be helped. But uh, that sense of I'll do what I can, and uh, and if they pick it up and use it, then that's fine. If they don't, then that's their business. And uh, again, uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the the very first teaching, the, the num- sutta number one in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is like the hundred and fifty some odd suttas, a very sort of essential sort of uh, main block of of. Um, Dhamma teachings, a uh, very comprehensive collection of teaching. Sutta number one finishes with the the words, uh, and the, the the monks who are listening to the Buddha did not delight in the Blessed One's words. So that's then they put that first in the whole collection. That sutta number one, the the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, that it was like nope, don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's also I think a great a, edit, a, a very uh, fine editorial gesture that. Uh, yeah, let's get it clear. Not everyone who heard the Buddha's words, even his own disciples, would be delighted because it was talking to his own monks. Um, and he gave this very comprehensive teaching about uh, non-identification. And um, the monks took objection to what he said and didn't agree, and they were not delighted in the Blessed One's words. <laughs> so, so I think it's a, 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 a good sign. That, and I think also... To me, it says how trustworthy the Pali Canon is that they don't have uh, the Buddha always you know, every teaching being sort of totally adored and respected and, and uh, effective. But you know, they're ready to start off with, well, this one, this one didn't work. <laughs> that uh, it's a fantastically comprehensive teaching, but they just they did not delight in the Blessed One's words and they you know, rejected what he had to say. So, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. Yeah, I happened to read something of the discussion to uh, explore whether really Buddha was teaching in his time. Like most of the uh, Dharma we receive today is based on Q&A. So, if people like if people didn't have problem, Buddha wouldn't open his mouth to <laughs> really talk about all these. Um, well, to an extent, but um, there's a lot of suttas that um, 
I mean, it's it, there's sometimes not a lot of context, um, but it, you know, a sutta might begin uh, with the Buddha saying, uh, uh, he saying, yeah, I will teach you the the possible and the impo- uh, and the impossible, and then just launch into a dhamma talk. So whether somebody had said before that, oh, venerable sir, what, what what do you consider to be possible? What can you do? You, do you consider to be impossible? But there's uh, there's a lot of suttas where it's just he just sort of launches into a subject. So um, it's it's not always the case that it's come up from a question or, or a um, a particular um, event or, or like the um, some. Uh, there might be some kind of an encounter the Buddha meets someone or something happens and then he just makes a comment about that or he, he recounts an incident uh, that uh, has has occurred sometimes um, the, you get the, a story where the, the Buddha's picked up through his you know, morning meditation he's picked up as a particular gathering of monks or some kind of potential situation and he'll he'll walk off to some uh, some forest or some park and meet with the Different group of people, or uh, and and engage in conversation with them. So it's not always from Q and A, but uh, it, uh, they um, uh, it, it's uh, arising from the living encounters or the the kind of um, uh, events that have, have occurred. But uh, it it wouldn't be from from uh, necessarily from particular questions. I do. Was that what you were asking or saying? I think I'm trying to say is like basically his teaching is mostly intuitively. He doesn't have really a systematical knowledge to convey to people. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, which leads to the uh, earlier stage when he reached his enlightenment, he didn't have the wish to teach. Mm-hmm. He wants to go for nirvana. So I mean. What is said, but then that part I always feel a little bit man made, like he was persuaded <laughs> to teach, and then for worldly views, oh, of course, he has to do it out of compassion. So, my question is, as a Buddha, does is he still bound to compassion? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, there, in the uh, apparently, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but if you look at the um, the, the teachings that were around about 2,000 years ago in like the first century of the, before the Common Era and up into the before the Mahayana movement really got going so about 400 years after Buddha's time up to that period then when Buddhahood is spoken about it's not based upon compassion that it rather the, the, reali- the determination to realize Buddhahood and the um, the 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 kind of effort of the bodhisattva career up until about the first century of the common era the motivation was fulfilling the potential that living beings have like this is the the most that can be done and the aspect of compassion and uh, realizing that that full uh uh say quality of buddhahood that being uh, for the purpose of helping other living beings that came in as uh, as an emphasized quality later on so there's uh, one of the um, uh, lay Dharma teachers in, in uh, the Bay Area, Gil, Gil Fronsdal. He did a, a PhD in Buddhist studies at Stanford University. And that was the theme of his PhD, was 
that the the motivation for Buddhahood in the um, in the earliest you know, the, the the texts that appear from that that era from about a hundred years before the common era and after the the first century but so it was the kind of the compassion side was a theme that got ramped up in the Mahayana movement and it's almost like that was a kind of um, uh, almost like a political gesture like a sort of this this is what this is what our team is all about and this is what we're saying that it's all is all to do with but earlier on it was more uh, not so much compassion but the fulfillment of of the human the, the, the potential living beings and that it's and it's interesting that it, it, that story of the buddha being persuaded to teach by the brahma sahampati that is also carried on in the northern buddhist world you know the mahayana uh, realm that they still they have that story and it's very difficult for them to explain that because if they, they have the mythology of oh, it was all to do with compassion all along so it makes absolutely no sense that as soon as the Buddha is enlightened, rather than, now I can help all living beings, it was, like, there's no point trying to say anything, because no one's ever going to understand this. So the story uh, that matches that, that same thesis that, uh, that Gill had, uh, had written, and uh, uh, that the, after this gazillions of lifetimes, and then the full, full attainment, uh, the Anuttara Samasambodhi is actualized, that full enlightenment is realized, then the first thought is that there's no point trying to talk about this because no one will understand. Um, so that the uh, the compassion side of it, uh, which to, to northern Buddhists can seem very heretical, but the, 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 it does make sense if you consider immediately after enlightenment he wasn't inclined to teach and then he had to be persuaded that that was um, a good thing to do. But it was like that wasn't the principal motivation for the realization of Buddhahood, it was more. This is the fulfillment of the the potential of of, uh, of, uh, of living beings. This is like taking it to its ultimate possibility, and then the acting uh, and engaging uh, for the purpose of helping other living beings as a natural and very very helpful offshoot of that. But it's not the primary motivation. I have a copy of Gill's thesis if you're interested. It's a PhD, so it's kind of in academia speak, but uh, I do have a copy of it. Yes, it's um, it's one of those uh, interesting things that you know, after all those lifetimes, then the first thought is, there's no point trying to talk to anybody about this. Like, wow. <laughs> because I, uh, this question is always in my mind, like each religion needs to have a, a character of a messiah to, to be compassion, to be, you know, saving the world. And so this kind of inviting Buddha and Buddha agree with, with reluctance, I always feel a bit awkward. doesn't feel it's very much uh, reflecting the core of uh, the teaching itself. It's one thing. Another thing is, uh, I think the word compassion is uh, the world view in interpreting compassion will be always very limited because the way we conduct it can be full of conceit. Mm -hmm. no can be. Yeah. So that is uh, an enigma. Like how how does Buddha interpret his <laughs> compassion? Does he really need to interpret? <laughs> this question is. 
But it's also from what what you, what you were saying earlier about. It, I think one of the most significant aspects of the Buddha's teaching is that it arose circumstantially. So rather like British law, you know that the, the laws that pertain there, there's no constitution for the in Britain. There isn't like like America has a constitution. There isn't a constitution in, in UK law. It's uh, all the laws that have arisen according to circumstances and ca and different cases, different things that have happened. So just like the Vinaya wasn't laid down as a sort of a fixed system of, of rules that people had to behave in certain ways and the Buddha made a ruling. So so many of the teachings that the Buddha gave is because he happened to be talking to a, you know, a, 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 a farmer who was looking after the cows or he happens to, to, to be talking to a... Um, a group of of Brahmin priests, so he happens to be talking to the you know the the queen and, and king of the country. So that it's a right. The teachings are arising from from those circumstantial events, um, and then that like that Mula Pariyaya Sutra, that first one of the of the um, middle length discourses. It, apparently, the reason why that uh, according to the commentary is that the reason why that it was rejected was because. Uh, he was talking to a, a lot of monks who are former, formerly Brahmins, and so the the whole of that sutta is about dismantling self-view and conceit, and uh, and a, a kind of going against the Brahminical thinking of a supreme deity or a supreme quality of, of defined being. And so it's, he's dismantling all of that. And so at the end of the talk, they didn't agree. <laughs> But it was because he's trying to spell things out for people who had a lot of what they call sasatavada or eternalist thinking, and uh, that that was um, uh, because that's that's what he was talking about. Because that's who he was talking to. So that circumstantial arising of the, the teaching and the particular phraseology, the examples he's using, arise from who he's talking to and the and the situation. So the kind of situational teaching, um, and so that. It's like, okay, I can teach, and then, well, what's there to say, and who's there to say it to? So rather than having a program, and a systematic structure, then it's, he allowed it to, and to take shape um, accordingly. And, and I think that, that sense of, of the teaching as a response rather than a declaration, it's like you're responding to circumstances. Like, uh, uh, even though most religions have some kind of a messianic figure or a sort of holy person who gets put up at the front um, they also you do get that sense of the teaching being coaxed out of um, like like with uh, the Tao Te Ching in Taoism it's like in order to get across the border Lao Tzu had to persuade the customs officer to let him through and so it's like, like according to the story it's like the in order to let the, the to, to get across the border, he had to persuade the the, the border guard, you know, let me through. And well, what what have you got? All I've got is my teaching. And then he sort of gave the the whole of the Dao Te Ching was what was left with the border guard, obviously with a very good memory. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly wrote it all down. Said, okay, you can go. But um, that's it. Was not like Lao Tzu was like making a whole kind of. Um, a program, or a, a, according to the stories, it was like he it was it was coaxed out of him, invited by the circumstance of if you want to cross this border, you've got to give me uh, give me something, and that what he gave was uh, his his uh, understanding of reality.
Okay, so let's continue. I have a question. Sure. There was a sentence, a, a short sentence that said something like, um, if you try to teach someone it doesn't work out, then return to normalcy. Uh, you remain in a state of normalcy, not feeling you've lost anything. There's no harm done to you. What's normalcy? <laughs> um, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's Paul Brighter's choice of words. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, I would say he's probably... Um, uh, he's probably a translation of upeka, of equanimity or serenity. Uh, I suspect I couldn't swear to it, but it's it's Paul's translation. But I think also that feeling that you've not lost anything, or I would say, or failed, because often I want to help you. You're still upset, therefore uh, I have failed to help you. So we can take that I have failed because you're still unhappy. So we take that the, the continuing suffering of others. We take it personally, whereas the Buddha didn't. And I say from from the uh, that sense of, I, d- I know I care, and I've done my best, this being is still suffering, okay. I'm not glad that they're still suffering, I've done everything I can, as far as I can tell, okay. You know, that uh, being able to uh, not feel there's anything missing, not feeling like you've lost anything, or I, I would say probably um, that you're, you're diminished, or you've failed, or you're, you're, you haven't done what, what you should, that kind of those meanings are, are there in that. Because I used to feel that a huge amount as growing up. I, I that was a powerful thing in my mind. It was that uh, uh, never being able to do enough, never being able to to, to help, and then feeling like it was my fault that, that um, uh, if I wasn't able to help someone, help a situation, that it was uh, it was my failure or my problem that they were still suffering, and so. Um, Coming across that in Buddhist in the Buddhist approach to things, that was a huge eye opener for me. It's like, wow. And that you know, like a, 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 a being a doctor, you know, that the, if the patient dies or doesn't recover, like it's, I'm sure it's very easy for the doctor to blame themselves. You know, I should have done more. I could have done more. It's my fault that they've died. Um, and that uh, I'm don't want to read too much into your doctoring, but uh, uh, yeah, I would imagine it's quite easy to feel have those feelings. Yeah. Something comes to mind that happened a couple of months ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that um, there's a, a, a speaking of doctrine, there's, there's a, a very insightful book called Complications by a, 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 I think he's a Sri Lankan doctor working in the States called Atul Gawanda. Oh, yeah. uh, and it's about doctors failing in many different ways of how you, you, know, you misdiagnose or you're. The consultant is alcoholic and incompetent, but in charge of everything. So you oh. mean it's fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's the thing; is it's quite <laughs> remarkable, in that it's a doctor, you know, in a in a, in a, a, a high a highly responsible position, actually acknowledging that you are not totally in command of the situation, and that and uh, that sometimes you know the, the patient died, and. Everything that was, could have been done was done. The, the, the patient's death was not the fault of the doctor. It was because the patient was born. And they were going to die at some point. And everything that was possible was done. And they passed on. And, uh, and it's that 
uh, and then he talks very very skillfully and very evocatively evocatively about how as a doctor like no no there must be something we can do and at a certain point where you they have you have to acknowledge in that role of like no there's nothing we can do it's this it's gone past a point where anything can be done so and then the challenge of of not taking it personally <coughs> that you fully care and you're uh, attuned to the situation but things have left your your zone of of uh, control you know it's, it's not it's beyond your reach and that was something i just had no clue of uh, growing up and getting a acquainted with that in the Buddhist uh, world is like wow that is completely different because it's like you, you know you, you should do more you could do more and that but then realizing yeah I, I I trust that I if I could do more I would do more but this is the limit of what I can do uh, and that I can lift a, a 50 pound rock but I can't lift a hundred pound rock I can maybe get some help <laughs> So we can lift it together, but this is this is where my capacity is only so much, and that uh, and trusting that, and I feel that's very much in the spirit of the Buddha's teaching, offered to everybody, and there'll be those who pick it up and those who don't. There's different kinds of horses. Yeah. Okay, so where are we? Just before so, let's continue a little bit. The Buddha taught this. Thus we can say that morality is the parent of all dharma. Just like the breath is the progenitor of all our limbs and organs, if the breath stopped, could we continue to function? Sila is like this. It means purifying the actions of body and speech. We could say that morality is 50% of the path. Of course, there is more to do. For example, a person can speak nicely, yet still have a black heart. But in order for there to be path, fruit and nirvana, when it comes down to it, there must be morality first. So, we have the verses beginning with Morality leads to happiness. Silena Sukhatinyanti, Silena Boga Sampada, Silena Niputinyanti. Lord Buddha urged all his followers to practice pure mor- morality, just as all of us were born of mother and father. So, all Dharma, meaning all that is good and noble in the world, is born of morality. Every week on the lunar holiday, on the corp- Four quarters of the moon, we talk about this because it is the parent that will give birth to the child of goodness and excellence from the womb of this existence. But people don't have much trust in it. If people were to practice and realize this for themselves so that the truth of it penetrated their hearts, that would be the most excellent sort of merit. I would really rejoice to see people genuinely come to understand the Dharma like that. And I would feel that the opportunity of being born as a human and meeting the Buddhist religion has not been wasted. But if one has all the conceptual knowledge, as many of us do now, but doesn't practice, what's the point? What will come of that? Please understand this. We have only this one gathering this year, next year at this time, on the uh, Songkran festival day. Next year at this time, we will meet together again to do the traditional water ceremonies of the new year once more. But it isn't certain, is it? We can't really be sure that the people who are here now celebrating the new year will be here again next year. Put simply, we can't really entertain any hopes for anyone. We may not be able to do the sprinkling of water with some people next time. Why is this? 
because things keep passing. These days, impermanence is in hot pursuit, out to destroy us. Sometimes people come and ask, Lumpur, aren't you afraid of the communist guerrillas? This was in the mid-70s, early 70s, when uh, you, could, you could hear the big guns from across the river in, in Laos uh, on a daily basis, very frequently there. And uh, so in, in uh, Ubon is, uh, Wobapong was about 80 kilometers from Cambodia and about 50 kilometers from Laos. So right in that corner, which we both had the, the communist takeovers at that time. Lumpur, aren't you afraid of the communist guerrillas? Hey, why should we be worrying about communists? Have they been out to kill us from the day we were born? I'm not so afraid of communists. There are many things that are inherent in this life and in this body that are much more frightening. So, don't go thinking too much about too many extraneous matters, things that are far away. So there was also, they talked a lot about the domino effect in Thailand, that uh, Laos and Cambodia had, had gone communist and then Thailand was uh, considered to be the next domino that was going uh, to fall. But uh, it uh, didn't happen that way, but it was very much in the air in those days. So I'll finish there for today.